Welcome to this episode of our Construction Law Back to Basics podcasts, a series of podcasts by Stevens and Bolton's construction and engineering team designed to provide listeners with an overview of the core construction law principles you need to be aware of throughout the key stages of a construction project. Whether you are procuring a professional team or looking to pursue a claim, our series of podcasts hopes to provide you with a succinct summary of the practical points that need to be at the forefront of your mind as the project moves from conception to completion. I'm Chris Lamb. I'm an associate at Stevens and Bolton, and I'm joined today by Samuel Burnage. Sam, welcome. Thanks, Chris. In today's podcast, we'll be giving you a high-level overview of various points you should make sure you address in your construction contracts prior to the commencement of the works, and what this can mean for each party's liabilities and responsibilities accordingly. In particular, we'll be looking at the limitations on liability, who has insurance responsibilities, and how liquidated damages are captured in the bodies of these contracts. With a lot to cover in a short amount of time, is there anything, Chris, that the party needs to be aware of right at the outset of a project? Well, uh, first of all, and I cannot stress this enough, it's vitally important that the parties not enter into a formal written contract for the works to be carried out on the project. Often it can be tempting to simply enter into a contract based on a handful of emails or even just a verbal agreement between the parties on the basis that this will be faster and cheaper for everyone involved. Now, while this is tempting at the outset, the problem with this approach is that when issues do arise on the project, whether with respect to specification, payment, termination or more, the lack of certainty around how to manage and address these issues can ultimately lead to delay and further costs being incurred. Absolutely. I hear often that this approach seems ideal for the parties at the outset of the project when things are going smoothly, but that they often fall apart when problems start to arise. Worse, trying to resolve these problems often result in any time and money savings ultimately being lost. Yeah, and it's for this reason that perhaps unsurprisingly, several standard form contracts have come into existence in the last few decades, which act as the bedrock for a considerable number of projects in the UK. I don't know, for the purposes of this series of podcasts, uh, we're going to be looking at the suite of contracts com- uh, that are prepared by the Joint Contracts Tribunal, which are also known as the JCT suite of contracts. But are there any others that you know of, Sam, that are of particular note? Well, we could talk for hours on the various different types of standard form contracts. And indeed, we did briefly touch upon this in our last podcast. But to keep it short, another common suite is the NEC series of contracts prepared by the Institution of Civil Engineers, which focus on collaboration and cooperation between the parties to complete the project. There is also the MF1 and FIDIC series of contracts, which are used on various engineering projects, both in the UK and globally. Which means, of course, there is a huge number of options for any potential developer or contractor to select for their project. And the issue, of course, is that while it can be tempting to just grab one of these contracts off the shelf and use it as written, rarely in their unamended form do the contracts reflect the exact terms the parties actually want to enter into. Which is why we often propose that the contract is amended to reflect the agreed position between the parties. The the JCT suite of contracts, for example, is generally considered to be quite contractor-friendly, meaning the developer takes on the majority of the risk for any issues that may arise on the project. In order to address this imbalance, we'll often look to include a schedule of amendments to the contract, which amends the contract terms so that these reflect the risk matrix agreed between the parties to the project. Of course, it's nearly impossible for a perfectly balanced approach to be adopted between the parties, and so any attempt to amend the contract will often be a matter of sometimes intense negotiation. This, however, remains preferable compared to the risk of a party unexpectedly having to incur additional time and money managing a risk which under an unamended building contract it suddenly finds itself responsible for. 
Absolutely. And one of the points we often see a considerable amount of negotiation around is attempts by a contractor to limit their liability under the building contract. Now, while the NEC and the FIDIC contracts, which you just mentioned, allow for caps on liability, the JCT suite of contracts does not, which means we often receive requests for overall caps on liability to be included within that schedule of amendments to the building contract. Which can be understandable where the contractor is working on a large project, where the value of the contract works may exceed its ability to pay any damages it owes to the developer, even where it has the benefit of insurance. Of course, but caps such as these are not enticing for the developer, who will want the option to pursue any losses it might incur as a result of the contractor's failure to comply with the contract. So on that note, are there any options available to the parties to potentially deal with this particular issue? Well, the most common way of managing this is usually to only include caps or exclusions on liability for certain types of losses. And of these, the most common request that I receive is a cap for any consequential or indirect losses, which are incurred by the developer as a result of the contractor's breach of contract. This is not particularly unusual as far as caps go, and even the JCT suite of contracts envisions that the parties might actually want to include a cap on these losses. Uh, but this is, of course, only one suggestion. There are net contribution clauses, which are also popular with contractors and consultants, as they protect the party from having to pay all of the claimant's losses, where other third parties may have contributed to the damage that has been caused. This, of course, means that if the developer, for example, wants to recover all of its losses, it will need to pursue multiple claims against all the parties who contributed to the damage in order for it to achieve and recover all of those losses. It's for this reason that net contribution clauses, as you can imagine, are rarely popular with developers and are often rejected. One limitation on liability, which is more acceptable to developers, however, are time bars, including the time as to when a claimant can bring a claim against the other party for a breach of contract. Commonly, amended contracts include specific provisions which state that proceedings may not be brought against the contractor more than 12 years after the practical completion of the works. And this is something that a developer is often happy to accept. Now, it is not known for several limitations of liability clauses to be tied to the level of professional indemnity insurance, which the contractor is commonly required to take out and hold under the terms of the building contract. Now, for our listeners who may be uncertain as to what professional indemnity insurance actually covers, Sam, are you able to give a rundown? Yes, of course. So professional indemnity insurance grants an individual or business an indemnity against any claim or loss arising from any negligent acts, errors or omissions connected to the works they carry out. It is for this reason that all of the standard form building contracts contain express provisions requiring that businesses take out and maintain a minimum level of professional indemnity insurance usually for a period of up to 12 years following the practical completion of the works. This is, of course, something that the parties must ensure is captured clearly within the body of any construction contract they enter into. And it's not just limited to professional indemnity insurance. For example, the JCT building contract makes it a requirement that the contractor holds public liability insurance in order to provide cover for personal injury, death or damage to any third party property. The responsibility to take out this insurance is not always just on the contractor, is it, Sam? Not at all, particularly where the works are taking place in or adjacent to other buildings. Where this is the case, the JCT suite of contracts envisions that the employer, not the contractor, will take out a contractor's all-risk policy, which covers both the works being carried out and any damage that might be caused to the existing building. 
This policy must also be in the joint names of the, both the employer and the contractor. The level of insurance to be held will depend on the nature of the works and the value of the property where the works are taking place. But it's vital that this insurance is taken out by the employer prior to the commencement of the works, or the employer risks being in breach of contract. In short, it's vital that this, along with any other insurance obligations, are properly thought about when putting together the contract. Is there anything else, Chris, which you believe the construction contract should also address? Well, we've already briefly discussed limitations of liability, but I feel it is important to address the importance of including liquidated damages provisions in the body of your contract. Now, these are damages which are agreed by the parties in advance, which become payable where an identified breach of contract occurs. Commonly, this is where the contractor fails to complete the works on time, following which the damages begin to accrue, usually on a weekly or monthly basis. This allows the employer to recover any losses it might have incurred, either by requesting payment from the contractor or deducting these damages from the sums that are payable to the contractor for the works that are yet to be completed. This, of course, sounds excellent for the employer, who will have some additional certainty that it will be able to recover these sums without the need for complex litigation. But why would any contractor agree to such a provision, Chris? Well, apart from encouraging the contractor to complete the works on time, these liquidated damages protect the contractor from claims from the employer for general damages which are incurred as a result of late completion, essentially acting as a sort of limitation on liability, as we discussed earlier. It also gives certainty to the contractor in that it gives them a better understanding of the potential losses that are facing the employer if it fails to complete the works on time. And accordingly, this risk can be factored into the contractor's price for the works. So in summary, agreeing the rate of liquidated damages at the start of a project and capturing these in the contract allows the parties to balance and manage any risks regarding the completion of the works and any delays that might occur. Which sounds good to me. Thank you for tuning in and listening to today's podcast. If you have any questions at all or would like any further information on what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch with myself, Chris, or your usual Stevens and Bolton contact. In the next episode of our Back to Basics series, I'll be joined by my colleague, Willem Evans, to discuss how you can deal with any changes that might arise once the project has started. We'll be looking at some of the common contractual mechanisms for addressing changes, as well as who takes on responsibility for any additional time and money that are, that are incurred in implementing these changes. We hope to see you then. Which leads me to say thank you again for listening and to wish you all a very good day. Goodbye.